You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18. Last week we um, looked at the first part of this chapter, specifically the scene uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane where um, Jesus is arrested. And um, our summary last week said that The events leading up to Jesus' arrest remind us that he is always in control when life is spiraling, always working to grow rather than squelch our faith, and always willing to extend grace in our worst moments, right? And so last week we saw that when we're disoriented, um, not really sure what's going on in our life, not really sure what direction to take or, or what course or path to follow, that um, we follow God because he's always in control. He's always showing his sovereignty. And we see that in the garden last week, right? We see Jesus knowing exactly where he's going. Um, And we see that John takes very uh, intentional care to write in such a way where we can see uh, that Jesus knew exactly where he was going. He was leading the disciples to an area, to a place where Judas knew exactly where to find them, right? And so he's not hiding from that betrayal. He's, he's going to meet it. We said that he even crosses the, the Kidron Brook where there would have been allusions and uh, allegories to the fact that um, the blood of the sacrifices would have run from the temple in that area. And so he, as the sacrificial lamb during this Passover season, is helping his disciples even connect some of the dots here. Um, and so it's a reminder to us that we don't have to question our circumstances, that Jesus knows exactly where he's taking us. He knows exactly where he's going. He knows exactly where he's taking us. And then we said that he knew exactly what was going to happen once they got there. Um, says that, that he stepped forward to identify himself as the one that the mob was looking for, knowing exactly what was going to happen, knowing exactly the fact that they were going to arrest him and it would eventually lead to his crucifixion. So not only do we not have to question our circumstances, we don't have to feel anxious about our circumstances because Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen in our life too. And he knew exactly why everything was taking place. Right? We don't have to fight our circumstances. He, he steps in and uh, rebukes Peter, who is um, trying to fight and, and ends up cutting Malchus's ear off. And Jesus steps in and tells Peter, that's not how we're handling things here, um, that there's purpose in what's taking place, and we're not going to fight against it. And so we don't have to fight against our circumstances either. We can trust God with those circumstances. We said, when doubting, hope in God, because he's always keeping you saved. We talked about how Jesus strengthens the disciples' faith by putting them in that garden scene. Um, and when he identifies himself as the one that they're looking for, the crowd falls back onto the ground, including Judas, right? It really stood out to John that Judas was included in that group that basically falls on its knees in the presence of Jesus. The one who's betraying Jesus, the one who thinks he's in control of turning Jesus over, he's ultimately submitted to Jesus, right? But we also said that when Jesus is arrested, he, he makes a deal with the mob that says, you have to let all these, all my disciples go, right? Like you can't take them with you. And we said, that's so uncommon when we hear stories and watch movies and, and whatnot, that the bad guys rarely let the hero's friends get, get away, right? Like usually there, there's lying and betrayal that even takes place in that arrangement. But Jesus shows his power by allowing his disciples to be set free. And we said that their faith wasn't ready for that trial yet, that they needed to see the resurrection before they would have made um, professions of faith in the midst of such a difficult trial. And then lastly, we said, when discouraged, we turn to God because he's always more gracious. 
um, that Jesus is a better Adam here in the garden, going back to the garden uh, of Eden where Adam disobeys, we see instead Jesus being the better Adam by obeying in this garden, right? And then we also see his grace in the garden in that Malchus, who's there to arrest Jesus, deserves God's wrath, and yet Jesus extends grace to him by healing his ear and putting it back on. And uh, we see that even when we're in the midst of our worst sins, that Jesus's grace is better and it's more, um, and it can, it can extend to, to our worst sins. And so last week we saw kind of that spiral review, uh, things that we know already, but things that get reinforced in this passage, that uh, we see God's love, we see his sovereignty, we see his power, and we see his grace. And I challenged you last week to spend some time meditating uh, on those truths. We come to the rest of chapter 18 today, and we see the narrative playing out of Jesus's arrest um, and the trial that takes place, uh, the interrogation that takes place about uh, who he is and what he's done and whether or not he deserves to be set free or whether or not he deserves to be punished, even to the point of death. And we'll take time to read the passage throughout our sermon time together. So let's jump right into our summary sentence for today, uh, what we're going to try to unpack over the next few minutes. The narrative of Jesus's trial reinforces key beliefs about Jesus, specifically his perfection, wisdom, and sovereign control giving us great motivation to humbly pursue the complete transformation his truth is capable of producing. This narrative that we're going to see today, it reinforces some key beliefs about Jesus, specifically his perfection, his wisdom, and his sovereign control. And this gives us great motivation to humbly pursue the complete transformation, the inward transformation and the outward transformation that his truth is capable of producing in our life. For our kids, Jesus' trial reminds us that he is perfect, wise, and always in control. The the narrative plays out in such a way today that that it reinforces some some things that we see about Jesus or have heard from Jesus in his teaching. Um, And and as we're going to read through this today, we're going to see there's things that are coming to pass just as he said they would. And that ought to give us confidence in his control because we see that he was in control of things in the past and that should give us confidence about the control that he has over things moving forward in our life too. All right, so as we see this narrative and we unpack this narrative, we're gonna see that that Jesus is in control because things are playing out just like he said they would play out, just like he planned for them to play out. And that should give us great confidence that whatever happens this week, we don't know. We don't know the future. We can't tell what's happening. <clears throat> but it gives us great confidence knowing that, that Jesus does know what's coming this week, right? That he's completely in control of it, and he's going to guide it and direct it for good purposes. All right? Um, so looking at this passage, I want us to jump in and see <clears throat> a couple or four specific things that I think are reinforced here um, about Jesus. And we'll start uh, by reading in verse 19. This is after, and we'll come back, this is after the the band of soldiers have arrested them, arrested him, and it's also after Peter starts the denying Jesus. Uh, But in verse 19, it says, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, Jesus is brought before the high priest. 
identified as Annas, but then Caiaphas is also identified as the high priest too. And so just in my readings and studies, it seems that um, Annas had been the high priest, should have served in that capacity maybe for his whole life, but with Rome's involvement in Israel and some of their proceedings that they were kind of tinkering with that and messing with that. And so Caiaphas was also given this designation. And so that's why we see two high priests basically being acknowledged here. I don't think it carries a whole lot of weight for what's actually playing out in this passage. But it says, The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me uh, what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. We skip down to verse 28 now. It says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And then we see this last section here in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? I think when we look at this interrogation scene and we see these questions and and answers with further questions that Jesus is posing, I think one thing really jumps out um, in, in looking at what this narrative is reinforcing. And for our kids, what we're learning about Jesus is, number one, that he is perfect, that he has never sinned, right? This is the truth that that we know scripture teaches, right? Like he's the sinless lamb. Uh, he, he's the one who can stand in our place. He's the one that takes, his, uh, takes our sins upon his shoulders, right? But it's in this narrative format that, that we really get to see this in action. We really get to see this playing out that those who want Jesus dead most are really having a hard time bringing an accusation about him uh, to those in charge, right? The the Jews, the Jewish authorities, are wanting to talk to him specifically about his teachings, right? They're wanting to catch him once again in his teachings about uh, blasphemous things that he says about claiming to be God, right? But at the end of the day, Rome could care less about his teachings. And so they have to make it more political when they try to get Rome involved. And that's trying to incite the Romans against the fact that Jesus is claiming to be a king, right? So Pilate is less concerned about whether he thinks he's God or not, more concerned about what he thinks about his kingship. Is he a king, and what does that mean for 
for Pilate, who's kind of tasked to, to oversee this area for Rome? And then furthermore, what's that mean for Caesar, right? And so there, there's a really difficult time that we're seeing here playing out as far as them trying to find clear accusation against Jesus. The constant interrogation and the constant dismissals show that while they wanted to be rid of Jesus, they had no true case against him, right? So Jesus keeps appearing before people, and they keep dismissing him and saying, hey, take him to this other guy, because we're having a hard time proving his guilt, right? And Pilate, at the end of the day here, is even saying, look, I've, I've questioned him. I don't think he's done anything. Like, I, I don't think he's guilty of anything. We even see Jesus appealing to the fact that the way these interrogations are playing out aren't legal, and you've probably seen some of this maybe in your own personal studies or sermons that you've listened to, that uh, it was illegal for them to have this type of trial in the middle of the night. It was illegal for them to do it without witnesses. And so you might say, well, why is Jesus not just forthcoming here and answering the questions of the high priest when he starts asking him about his teaching? Well, what Jesus is, is, um, is, is alluding to here is that, hey, there should be witnesses in place, right? So instead of asking me, what I've done or what I've taught, you should be asking those who have sat under my teaching what it is that I teach and what it is that, that I've taught, right? And so Jesus is, is essentially calling them to a correct trial, calling them to correct processes, and they ignore that, obviously. But Jesus wants them to understand that, that what they're even doing is illegal. The way that they're interrogating him, the way that they're questioning him uh, doesn't even match the laws that are in place, Pilate asked the people for the accusation, right? They come to Pilate, kind of disrupt whatever it is that he was doing at the time. Um, And so Pilate, it says in verse 29, went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And what's their answer? Well, it's a sarcastic response where they try to cover up the fact that they have no accusation, right? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Right, so instead of giving an accusation, basically their response is, we wouldn't be here if he hadn't done something. Right? So just take him and, and, and try him and, and question him. There, there's a lack of ability for them to even uh, state an accusation against Christ. Right? Instead, all they can revert to is, hey, we wouldn't be here if he wasn't causing trouble. So now it's up to you to figure out what it is that he's done, basically. Jews can only respond that there must be uh, some accusation for them to be so upset about him. What this narrative is doing is is it reinforces some things that we see in Scripture, and it proves that at the time when Jesus' enemies were were ready to do battle with him at their best, that they were were struggling to find anything to accuse him of. In 1 John chapter 1, same author of the gospel of John we're studying. John begins this epistle and says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our own hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, what's John saying here? He's saying, look, this, this, this epistle is coming from somebody who spent real time with Jesus, right? Not 
not an individual who just sat at a conference that Jesus taught at, right? Not somebody who watched a video series that Jesus did. Not somebody who's read books about Jesus or had conversations with others about Jesus. John says, I'm somebody who, who walked and talked and lived with Jesus for a time period, right? So I saw him at what you might would say would be the, the worst times of the day, the early morning times when you would expect somebody to be grumpy and to have a bad attitude, or even at the end of the day, after a long series of events where somebody might be frustrated or even anxious about the, the things that are to take place tomorrow. John says, I, I, I've been with him. I've had my hands on him. I've seen him with my own eyes. And, and he says, I've got a message for you. In verse five, it says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Man, John uses his experience with Jesus to provide this teaching that says, look, Jesus has no sin. We are full of sin. And the only way to get rid of it is to go to the one who's without sin, right? Jesus has no sin. We are full of sin. And if we think that we're not, we're a liar, right? And the only way to get out of this mess is to run to Jesus who can forgive us of our sins and can put an end to our sin. And he can, he can teach authoritatively about that because he has firsthand experience. He says, look, I've spent time with him. And let me tell you, God's light and there's no darkness in him at all. Now, we might could expect, if this was all that we had, we might would expect, well, yeah, he was one of Jesus' best friends. He's gonna stand up for Jesus here. He's gonna say good things about Jesus here. He's investing his life in following Jesus, so he's certainly not going to say anything bad about Jesus here. So what our narrative does in John 18 is it, it really reinforces this because here is the other side. Here's the enemy side who, who wants to find darkness in Jesus, right? Who wants to, to find accusation against Jesus, and they can't, right? What they don't want to admit is that there's no darkness here at all that he's without sin and we're full of sin and the only way to get rid of it is to go to the one who's without sin. This passage reinforces 1 John chapter one because it's not just a best friend of Jesus saying that he's sinless. It's, it's, it's the enemies of Jesus who are having to come to grips with the fact that there is no sin in him. And, and what does that mean for us? Well, the fact that he is without sin and that's something that we have to believe to be saved, that he is without sin and we are full of sin is that it makes Jesus a viable candidate to take our sin. And so passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, they have teeth to them because Jesus is sinless, right? So for, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And our whole salvation is banking on the fact that he is without sin, and he became sin for us so that we become the righteousness of God. And this passage, John chapter 18 narrative, helps us to believe that he's without sin because when he's on trial, when accusations are being hurled at him, they're left wanting. They can't find anything to really accuse him of. 
1 Peter chapter 2, another one of Jesus' disciples who walked and talked and breathed with him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter's appealing to how Jesus handled his suffering, suffering that was unjust. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Man, Peter's argument is contingent upon Christ being without sin, right? If he suffers for for sin, then he's no example to us. You should suffer for being wrong. You should suffer for doing evil things. He says, though, when you suffer for doing the right thing and you endure that suffering, what a gracious thing to be able to handle it that way. And he's, and he's, he's, he's talking about the fact that we as his disciples, we've been promised that there will be times where we have to suffer, not because we've done anything wrong, but because we've attached ourselves to Christ and we've done the right thing and suffering may come for that. And we're to endure that suffering just like Jesus did when he was without sin, right? So these passages Man, they become more weighty if he truly is sinless, right? And the passage in John chapter 18 reinforces the fact that he is perfect. Number two, it also reinforces the fact that he is our sacrifice, that he really is a sacrifice for us. He died as a substitution for mankind, not as a martyr, not as a uh, victim, but he dies as a substitute. And there's two passages that I think in this chapter reinforce that idea. Number one would be verse 14. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Remember we talked about the irony uh, back in October um, in uh, John chapter 11, verse 51 and 52. This is where Caiaphas, this is after the resurrection of Lazarus. And they're talking about whether, what they should do about Jesus, right? And, and so uh, the whole idea here is that, hey, if we're not careful, Rome's going to get involved and we're going to lose our spots of power and we need to go ahead and kill Jesus. Better for Jesus to die than for all of us to potentially suffer and die. And he's right. Better for Jesus to be our substitute versus us having to die but for wrong reasons and wrong motivations, right? So, so Caiaphas has a perverted understanding of what Jesus needs to die for, right? He says, I want Jesus to die so that we're protected from the wrath of Rome. The irony there is that he's right. Jesus does need to die so that we're protected from wrath, but it's from the wrath of the Father, right? Um, and so that passage is alluded to again here because John wants to help us see that what is playing out here is Jesus dying in place of sinful man. What better way to illustrate that? And I think, I think there's a lot of things that play out in John chapter 18 
that God does for our benefit as a teaching tool, right? I think there's things that play out here that aren't necessary for our salvation, not necessary for the gospel, but they just help adorn the gospel. They just, they just make it more clear. They make it more beautiful. They make it more easily understood, I guess. And I think that's true at the very end of this chapter with the account of Barabbas. I don't think Barabbas is a necessary part of this story, right? Like there's nothing that gets really added to the gospel by having him uh, be chosen over Jesus to be released, except for the fact that it better helps us understand Jesus dying in place of a sinful man, right? It's Barabbas who deserves to be crucified here. He's the sinner. He's the robber. He's the thief. He's the liar, right? He's the one that society should be saying, this man deserves wrath. And yet they choose to release him and they choose to have Jesus suffer in his place. It helps us to better see the substitution piece of the gospel, right? He's not a necessary component to this story, but he helps it resonate with us. Here's a guy who's on death row. Imagine, and man, I wish, I wish we could, I wish we knew what would happen with Barabbas in the rest of his life, right? Does it ever connect for him that there's like double meaning here in the cross for me, right? Like spiritually, I deserve to be up there. Spiritually, I deserve to pay for my sins. And physically, I deserve to be paying for those sins too, because I was the one who was supposed to be on that cross and yet Jesus ends up taking my place. Man, if, if anybody should have responded to the truth of the gospel, it's Barabbas, because his physical life was spared by Jesus there. Right? He's not a necessary part of this story. But when we see it in the context of the narrative, it helps remind us he's not a victim. He's a substitute. And we can see us in place of Barabbas ourselves that we are the ones that deserve to suffer. We are the ones that deserve death. We are the ones that deserve punishment because we are full of sin. And if we think that we're not, John says we're liars, right? We may compare ourselves to others and say, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, and so that, that makes me okay, right? John says, if you think you're without sin, you're a liar, right? The only one who's without sin is Jesus, and the only one that can save us is the one without sin, being Jesus, right? So he's our sacrifice, he dies as a substitution for mankind. It was politically expedient for the Pharisees and the Sadducees to get rid of Jesus to preserve their power. They don't want their current lifestyle to be pressed upon, so they want Jesus dead so that Rome stays out of it. But what we see here is a reminder that the injustice suffered by Jesus is part of God's plan to rescue humanity from the bondage of sin. He is the substitute. What we see in 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Peter 2, he is bearing our sin for us, right? He is willfully becoming a sacrifice. Number three, we also see his wisdom in this passage. It reinforces our understanding that God is wise because he's intentional in the way that he died. Verse 32 the whole reason that, that God even allows Rome to get involved here is because the death on the cross helps us understand the gospel better. Because think about it. They say, look, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And that may be true, but it doesn't always stop them from putting people to death. Because it's only a little while later in the book of Acts where Stephen's being stoned to death for following Jesus. 
right? And nobody's saying, oh, we're not allowed to do this. We're going to have to go get Pilate involved and see if we can put together, put to death Stephen, right? No, they're just going to kill Stephen. And Paul is, Saul at the time, is, is killing Christians, right? And nobody's stopping to say, hey, are we allowed to do this or can we do this? And what will Rome think about this? They're just doing it. And I fully believe they could have done that towards Jesus here too, right? But I think God is sovereignly controlling the way that his son will die, right? He's not going to die by a shark attack. He's not going to die by some, some thief or robber breaking into his house at night and killing him in his sleep, right? He's not going to die peacefully at night from a heart attack. He's, he's not going to die in a way that doesn't make sense for gospel purposes, Think about it all the way back in the Old Testament. And we saw, them, we saw this illusion in John chapter 3. All the way back in the Old Testament, the Jewish people are rebellious and complaining and grumbling towards God. God says, I'm going to have to issue some punishment here, some discipline here. So I'm going I'm to have these fiery serpents biting the children of Israel and killing them. And the only way for them to get out of this is to what? Turn to the bronze serpent that he constructs. I mean, that was an intentional playing out of that picture to set the stage for Jesus. Because Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter three, just like that occurred in the wilderness and Moses was, was, was lifting up this serpent so that people could be saved, so too must the son of man be lifted up, right? So I fully believe that Jesus, uh, his death ordained by the father is intentionally playing out this way so that it makes the gospel as clear as possible that he's absolutely a substitute for us. It's not an accidental death, right? He doesn't die in the storm when, when, the, when the sea is raging around him. He dies in his injustice. And why is that important? Because it helps us feel the, the, the weight of him being without sin, right? You, you watch something like the Passion of the Christ and, and what your heart tells you is he doesn't deserve what he's going through, right? It's unjust what he is having to do. And it's because he's, he's, he's bearing our sin. He's bearing our punishment, right? So God's very intentional about how this plays out so that it, it clarifies gospel truths for us. And it says that the reason Rome's even having to get involved here, this was to fulfill, verse 32, the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He's not a victim. Victims are subject to circumstances beyond their control. He's in control of this. And he had specifically taught how he would die. Let's look at the three passages in in John where he talks about this. In John chapter three, the one that I just told you about with Nicodemus, he says in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In chapter eight, verse 28, when he's talking to the Pharisees, he talks about the intentionality of what's happening here. He says, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. When you've lifted up the son of man, right? And then lastly, with the crowds in John chapter 12, he makes a similar statement in John chapter 12, verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus knew all along, and the events play out in such a way to guarantee this happens. 
Why is this important for the Jews even for him to die this way? Why not stone him? Well, one, because God's in control and won't allow it. But even from their perspective, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 21, 23 talks about cursed is the man who hangs on that tree, right? Like they want to obliterate people wanting to follow Jesus after this, right? It's not just about stoning him. It's about making him a cursed image on the Roman cross. This is somebody you don't want to be like. That's the message they're hoping to betray through his death. It's the exact opposite of what happens. He's a wise God. He knows exactly what he's doing, even in how he dies. And then lastly, number four, he's sovereign. For our kids, he's always in control. It would be a mistake to think that Jesus came and failed in his purposes. And sometimes people try to portray it that way, that he came to do something that he wasn't capable of doing. And yet we see that he accomplished the very purpose for what he came to do. Verse 37 of chapter 18. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He has accomplished what he came to do with that first coming. He's successful in being king, but it's a different type of king, right? What he portrays here in this passage is that, yes, I'm a king, but I'm not a threat to you, Pilate, and I'm not a threat to Rome because my kingdom's different, right? My kingdom's not here to overthrow the Roman, the Roman authorities. We're not gonna fight, right? In fact, I told my disciples to put their swords up, right? He says, I'm a different type of king. He talks about his spiritual kingdom here and, and what, he's, what he's not really giving Pilate the benefit of hearing, what we know to be true is that he's looking to rule and reign in the hearts of men, right? Not, not in this political sense, but in a spiritual sense. And, and he's accomplishing that. And he is successful in that. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, we'd be fighting about it. But my kingdom is not from this world, Jesus says. Promises of a coming king that Jesus fulfills are seen in the Old Testament. In Genesis 49, when Jacob is blessing Judah, right? He talks about the, the scepter not passing from the line of Judah, right? In Numbers chapter 24, when Balaam is making prophecy, he talks about the one who is to come, whose, whose reign will not end. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, G, uh, God's talking to um, David and talks about uh, a son coming from him that'll be greater than Solomon, that, that, that who, who won't give up his authority. And so uh, there's this hope, this anticipation of a king who's to come. And, and that's what adds such weight to what Nathaniel says way back in John chapter one. Remember, he's, he's questioning the validity of who Jesus is and, and not really sure what to do with Jesus. And then uh, he says, when Jesus says, I know where you were before you came over here. You were under that fig tree. I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, verse 49 of chapter one. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You are the king of Israel. He's perfect. He's our sacrifice. He's wise and he's sovereign. We see all of these, these attributes of Jesus being reinforced in this narrative right here. I want you to be able to take that away from it. All right, I want to give you three points of application in the, the form of our outline to wrap up for today. Number one, remain humble lest you fall spiritually. One aspect that we haven't talked about yet from this passage is the denial of Peter, right? Back in chapter 18, verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, so did another disciple, probably John. 
Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside of the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Lest you think I'm crazy for thinking that their faith wasn't yet ready to be put on trial. And Jesus said, let these people go. Like, let them go. They're not ready for this. Right? Peter crumples under the pressure of a servant girl, right? Not a warrior, but a servant girl who questions him and says, are you a disciple of Jesus? And he says, I'm not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire. And so he's warming himself by this fire, right? Then in verse 25, as he's standing there warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. For our kids, we need to be humble lest we fall. Number one here, be cautious about overestimating your faith. Be cautious about overestimating your faith. Peter was so overconfident about himself. Remember prior to this, when he's talking with Jesus at the Last Supper setting, he tells him, I'm ready to die for you. In verse 37 of John chapter 13, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. That's where Jesus told him, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster is going to crow. I will not crow till you have denied me three times times. Be cautious about overestimating your faith. Number two, be encouraged that Jesus is prepared for your failures. Be encouraged that Jesus is prepared for your failures. Now, we've seen here in verse 38 that Jesus tells him, look, you're going to deny me. He was prepared for it. He, He recognized that was coming. But number three, we can also be ready to move past our failures after forgiveness because in Luke chapter 22, Luke's version of this narrative, he adds some additional information for us. And in verse 31, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's when Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Here we have Jesus even bringing this up before Peter brings it up, right? And he says, look, Satan's demanded to have you, but I've been praying for you and and your faith is not gonna fail. You're gonna fail, but your faith is not gonna fail and you're gonna turn back. And when you do, be useful and strengthen your brothers. Man, sometimes as Christians, we, we overestimate our faith, right? And then we slip up and fail and then we're just mired in discouragement about our failure, Like, how could I have let my Savior down? What was I thinking? How stupid of me to make the same mistake once again. Where Jesus is over here saying, hey, I forgive you of that. I need you to turn back. I need you to strengthen your brothers. Use that experience to help other people, right? Like, I'm ready to move beyond the failure because I already knew the failure was coming. That's why I went to the cross and paid for it. Now we need to have forgiveness take place. John says if we we recognize we have sins, we can come to him and he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, right? He wants to get us past that so that we can get back to being useful for him. And so that should be an encouragement to us. And we want to stay humble to minimize those falls. Be encouraged that he's already prepared for them when they do come so we don't have to get too mired in our depression about failing our Savior because he wants us to be ready to move forward and past the failure to be useful once again. Remain humble lest you fall. Peter, champion for Jesus, one of the 
the great disciples of Jesus, he's an example to us that anybody can fall, cautions us not to overestimate our faith. Number two, avoid elevating external rituals over inward change. Avoid elevating external rituals over inward change. For our kids, we need to be changed inwardly and outwardly. This is where we see the irony in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Think about all the treachery that is taking place in this passage. All the lying and scheming and deceiving false accusations that are taking place. And yet they're still mindful of the fact that, oh, we can't go into this Gentile's house, otherwise we'll be unclean and we won't be able to eat the Passover, so we need to stay outside here. Right? The irony is that they are so concerned about these external things and they're completely oblivious to how fallen and sinful they are in all these other actions. Right? And sometimes we can be guilty of this. And it's a reminder to us not to settle for external conformity only. Because it's possible to look really clean on the outside and remain completely unchanged on the inside. It's possible to pay attention to these minute details of religion while our hearts are really far from God. As they're delivering the Lamb of God to the slaughter, they're making sure their hands are ceremonially clean to do so. <clears throat> it makes no sense, right? It makes no sense. They're, 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 they're getting ready to do something dirty, and they want to make sure their hands are clean before they do it, right? It'd be like a kid coming in and washing his hands before he goes make it, makes mud pies outside in the rain, right? You need to wash them after the fact, right? Like having clean hands before you go do the dirty act doesn't do anything for you, right? And they're, they're completely oblivious to this. I mean, some of the worst people, some of the worst people go to church every single Sunday and they check it off the list, right? And they give some money to the church and yet they've, they've earned it dishonestly at their job, right? And yet they feel this compulsion to still give to the church because they're supposed to give, Right? They've, they've been doing all kinds of heinous acts during the week, but showing up on Sunday still resonates with them because they were raised to do that. Right? We have to be real careful that we don't fall into a trap of keeping these external rituals and thinking that that's sufficient, and yet there's no inward change taking place. Don't settle for external conformity only. Number two, inward change is the true sign of salvation. Right? It's the ones who hear the truth and listen to the truth Jesus says, they're the ones who are the true followers of him. We need to avoid elevating external rituals over inward change. And then lastly, number three, we need to embrace Jesus' teachings as absolute truth. For our kids, we need to believe that everything Jesus says is true. He comes to the end of his discussion with Pilate. He says, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And here's the guy who's supposed to figure out the truth, right? Like he's the one who's supposed to determine what is true and what is not true for the sake of this man's life. And he's the one saying, I'm not even sure I know what truth is, right? And we certainly live in a culture in a day and age where truth is questioned and truth is attacked, right? And truth is relative to uh, what culture says or what people feel or what your circumstances do, Right? And so truth gets filtered through all these other external uh, variables 
before we land on what is true. And Jesus says, I've come to communicate truth. And Pilate is left saying, I don't know what truth is, and Jesus is the truth, right? So for us, it's a reminder to us, don't allow truth to be determined by culture. Don't allow it to be determined by culture, and don't allow it to be determined by circumstances. Many a Christian has overestimated his faith, right? And allowed truth to become subjective to his circumstances. Pastor after pastor after pastor has preached truth, truth, truth. And then when it directly applied to him, circumstances dictated that he do something different because his feelings or his emotions or his desires were contrary to what Jesus said was true. And passages like this are, are, are a strong reminder to somebody like me in a position of being an elder in this church where I have to make sure that I don't overestimate my faith because, because I'm in the category of people that so many times people say I would have never expected my pastor to fall in that way, right? And so it's a, it's a, it's a strong reminder to me that I can't overestimate my faith and I can't allow what I know to be true to shift or change when my circumstances change or as culture changes and culture starts to say, you know what? As a culture, we used to say this was wrong, but now we say it's okay. What's the church going to say about it, right? Is the church going to be okay with this shift or are we going to stand by what we know to be true? And Jesus' truth is timeless. It's, it's never going to be classified as archaic, right? It will always be true. Application for us. The proper response to this passage, and as we continue to see this crucifixion play out, the proper response is not pity for Jesus. It's not for us to have courage in light of how Jesus handles this. Instead, it's to have faith in Jesus, to believe that he saves, to believe that message that John gives us in 1 John 1, that he's without sin, we are full of sin, and the only way to escape our sin problem is to run to him believing that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to believe that he forgives, right? To, to, to go, going back to what we said earlier in, in John, where, where the woman is um, presented as one who needs to be stoned, right? And Jesus says, if, if you don't have sin, stone her. And everybody kind of walks away. And, you know, we, t- we said that she could have easily reacted in discouragement about her own choices and felt like she still needed to be stoned, right? And yet Jesus is telling her, like, I'm not going to stone you. We have to be the type of people that fail and get up out of our failures and don't continue to try to stone ourselves and reject the forgiveness that's been extended to us. We believe that he saves. We believe that he forgives, right? Peter had to believe that forgiveness was being extended to him. On that beach, after the resurrection, when Jesus is, is calling him to love him, right? He has to step up and get over the failure so that he can help plant churches. He had to believe that the forgiveness was real. We have to believe that he guides us, that his truth guides us, that it's, it's, it's how we filter the decision-making that we do on a daily basis, that the word guides us. Man, I am in like this, this what feels like a crisis right now, trying to hire a position at Trinity, and it's such a spiritually weighty position for me, right? And every interview I've done this week, right? Every interview I've done this week, I've asked the person, how would you respond if one of our students came to you and said, I'm struggling with sexual orientation and gender? How would you respond to this, 
right? Every single one of them has given me an answer that does not include God's word, right? I want to be real sympathetic to them. I want them to know that I care and that I love and that I'm here for them if they ever want to talk, right? I need somebody to look at me and say, I'm going to take them to God's word, right? And I'm going to help them process through what is true, right? What is sin, but where there is grace and forgiveness and change that's possible, right? But, but we are becoming a product of a culture that is shifting in what truth is, right? And we're redefining truth. And Jesus says, I am the truth, right? I am the way, I am the life. And we need to believe that his guidance is still good for us today, that it's still relevant for us today. And we can still go to it to filter all of our decision-making. Our family worship questions for this week. What are some external things that we do as Christians that don't necessarily mean we are saved? And what truths do we see in the Bible that our culture would have us question? Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful for Jesus. We are so thankful that you sent him to be our substitute. We are so thankful that he is without sin because we have enough. We have enough that needs to be borne by him. Thank you that Jesus came to be perfect when we could not be. Thank you that he came to be a better Adam for us. God, thank you for making it such that, that our good works don't determine our destiny, that we can run to Jesus who has secured a destiny for us. Thank you that we can run to him and know that forgiveness will be extended, that the worst sinners can find grace. We thank you for our salvation for those of us that are saved this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to keep pursuing you faithfully. And, and when we fall, Lord, help us to, to reach out and, and experience the forgiveness that you continue to offer and know that, that we can be restored and be useful again to you. God, help us to keep clinging to your word. Help us to keep clinging to the truth found in it. And God, help us to be protected from allowing circumstances and culture to change what we believe. God, help us to cling to you when things are oftentimes so uncertain around us, to trust you for guidance. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.